This is a download from News Talk 106 to 108. To download other programmes or for more information, go to newstalk.ie. Talking Books on News Talk 106 to 108. Road, the final book in the Regeneration Trilogy. Booker Prize winning novelist Pat Barker writes, We are Craig Lockhart's success stories. Look at us. We don't remember. We don't feel. We don't think. At least beyond the confines of what's needed to do the job. But what does that mean now? We are objects of horror, but our nerves are completely steady and we are still alive. Hello, good morning, and you're very welcome to Talking Books. I'm Susan Cahill. How do traumatic experiences in life shape and transform our mental processes? On this week's show, award-winning Romanian writer and poet Carmen Mugan unpacks the impact of bullying, surveillance and exile on her family and her courageous decision to write her enthralling memoir, Bearing the Typewriter. And how and why did the human brain evolve? Intellectual historian and writer Ben Shepard explores big ideas about the brain, the nervous system and the birth of modern neuroscience. Immanuel Kant once said that psychology could never be a science because you couldn't apply mathematics to the mind. Well, we've been trying to do that ever since. And I think, you know, obviously they've had quite a lot of success in certain areas. But I think the interest about some of these people is that they realise that it isn't really, really a science. It can't be a science. So I think, I think what these guys are trying to do is they're trying to create a science of the mind and coming up all the time against the limitations of what you can and can't do. And some people, like the behaviourists, just said, well, look, you should just stick to the stuff which you can measure, just stick to the bits of, of mental activity which, you know, can be approached in a fully scientific way. But what McDougall and others said, well, if you do that, then you're leaving out most of what of human nature is about. So there's this, always this problem, I think. This is a show about brokenness and heroism, repression and memory, the nature of personal identity and the indescribable horror of war. But first, how the Romanian secret police tracked a childhood. At night, Carmen Bogan's father would rail against the Ceausescu regime in Romania by typing pro-democracy pamphlets such as We ask for human rights. We ask for hot water and electricity. We ask for freedom to assemble. Afterwards, he buried the typewriter in the garden. At 2am on the 10th of March 1983, Carmen's father, Ion, put on his best suit and drove to Bucharest. He stopped his car in a rush hour street and courageously mounted anti-government banners on the roof. That afternoon, 12-year-old Carmen returned home from school to find the secret police in her living room. She was interrogated. Her home was turned upside down. Her father's protest against the regime had changed her life forever. Carmen's father was imprisoned. Microphones and all sorts of high-tech 
surveillance equipment were hidden in the family home. Villagers and friends were forced to inform against the family. Teachers turned against her siblings and incited other pupils to bully them. Carmen's mother was banned from teaching and forced to divorce her husband. The family's days were filled with fear and terror. In 1986, Carmen's father was Amnesty International's political prisoner of the month and was also championed by the Index on Censorship. Carmen believes Western publicity may have stopped the Romanian authorities from making her family disappear. In 1987, Carmen's father was released in a national amnesty to relieve overcrowded prisons, but their surveillance got even more intense. She says, You would think something like this would tear people apart, but it worked the opposite way with us. It drew us closer. We could read each other's minds. We were each other's shadows. In 1989, aged just 18, Carmen managed to evade the secret police and with some help sought asylum for her family at the American Embassy in Bucharest. Within weeks, the Bugans were living very different lives in Grand Rapids, Michigan, where she says the family became model political refugees and immigrants. Carmen was the first to get work, aged 19, as a cleaner and her mother and sister became nurses. Her father got a job as a school caretaker and her brother is now serving in the US Army in Afghanistan. 23 years on, Carmen has written a vivid, intense and incredibly moving memoir of growing up in Ceausescu's Romania. Bearing the typewriter is a fascinating, but I have to say, hugely frightening read, bringing to life the stark realities of everyday life under the communist regime. The poverty, the repression, the psychological trauma, the food shortages, the paranoia, the violence, and of course, all the terrible disappearances. Some of Carmen's stories are so incredible, they're almost hard to believe. Well, today Carmen Bogan lives a very peaceful life on the border between France and Switzerland with her husband and young children. She says, I think I belong on a border. I feel safer psychologically if I have two countries, two places to go. Well, in early July, I had the pleasure of meeting up with Carmen at the West Cork Literary Festival. We walked the streets of Bantry, chatting about her very different childhoods, one in Ireland, the other in Romania. I asked Carmen about her father, Ion, and his memories of imprisonment and torture, and why she wanted to write about this dark chapter in the family's history. My father doesn't have a memory of certain tortures that happened to him, stuff that I found in the archives. One specific one was me finding a radiography of him having fissured ribs. And it says there, the prison doctor says that he had hammer applied to his fingers. And he had denied it when I I called him to talk to him about it. He said he doesn't have any memory of this. Why am I making this stuff up? So we went to the director of the research of the archives of the secret police and I've asked the question why is it that my father doesn't remember this why are these things in his file if they haven't happened she was uh, saying that this is very commonplace it happens to everyone and in fact she warned me because we are about to also go into the prisons and where I was asking my father about what happened to him in prisons and she was saying take it easy on him he's an old man he's a sweet man he survived a lot don't challenge him people are surviving by forgetting stuff and Carmen when we were talking earlier you said something that really stopped me in my tracks and it was very very powerful and very very shocking you said that when you arrived at the secret service archives that one of the key administrators said to you that you know people come here all the time looking for the truth but sometimes they feel raped by what they find yes what she meant to say is that people go to look for relatives who disappeared people go to look for their houses that were confiscated they try to find out what happened why they were confiscated people 
people look for relatives who went overseas and they never came back and they find out that they were murdered. But what they find about themselves is a level of surveillance that is so um, detailed. They feel properly raped because of it. They feel violated. And, and it's true. When you read about yourself, about having had coffee at 7.30 in the morning, about having waking up at 5.38 in the morning, about having had a fight at 3 in the afternoon, you feel that somebody has been watching you in a place where they should not have. There is a foreign element in your life that it shouldn't be there. So yes, you feel violated. It almost sounds unreal, yet it's true. I think what we learned to say to each other, there was an expression that we've always said is walls have ears and fences have ears and trees have ears. And the shadows of the trees were not the shadows of the trees. They were the shadows of whoever were standing behind the tree. So we were very used to this kind of surveillance. The safest thing to do was to trust no one was to always collect your thoughts. And then I remember very clearly not wanting to say positive things about my father or not wanting to say anything about my father. There was a girl who was codenamed, I think, Cecilia, who was in a resort of surveillance by the local captain of the secret police, and she was in charge of me. She was in charge of asking me how I felt about my father. And she was taking this information on a bus to school. Now, I don't remember, there were not too many girls who were my friends then, and there were not too many girls who commuted on a bus. So I could probably f- remember who she was, but I actually don't know anymore the childhood people, and I'm not interested in sort of going back and asking, have you done it and why have you done it? But I found this in a secret police records. I found the actual order, the bureaucratic order, that Carmen Bogan was to be monitored on her way to school about her feelings for her father. And Carmen, an extraordinary thing is that you visited your father age 17. You travelled on your own to a prison and you have no recollection of this memory. Yet when you've been researching the archives and you're now writing a book on this, there are so many details there, so much information there and you cannot remember a thing. Do you find that very extraordinary? Is that a very strange position to be in? That is an extraordinary position to be in because here I am with a record that testified to the life of a child when she was 17 years old. And I'm faced with that against the testimony of my own memories that say I haven't done that. Now I talked to my parents about this and I told my father and I told my mother and my mother said, of course it's not true. You, I would have never let you go by yourself. Is a two days on a train at the age of 17 to go by yourself. Even though, of course, she was uh, refused, she said, most likely I was with you and they didn't let me go in. So the record says that it's just you visiting your father, but doesn't explain that you haven't gone there by yourself. So we are now in a family trying to make sense of this. Was my mother really forced to send me by myself? Did I actually make the trip? What is it? However, what the record brings to life is the very strong feelings of me having seen my father on my own. Whether my mother traveled with me to Ayud prison and she was not allowed to go in. Whether I did it by myself, I actually don't remember at all. And Carmen, you've written a very emotional, a very perplexing, a very thought-provoking memoir called Bearing the Typewriter. And it details the story of your father story of your relationship and the whole experience of your family from living under the secret police in Romania, a highly oppressive and violent regime, to exile in America. 
Yes, my family story is a very typical, unfortunately, a story of East European oppression. You know, we grew up in a countryside. My father protested against the government. Not many people protested in the same way he did, but many people did voice their opinion against the government and ended up dead, were exiled, were in prison. And the book really is about the sacrifice of heroism the costs of the act of dissent on a family. And this is where I thought I would come in to show what the child experienced during that period of time, what the costs would be to a child, how a child would feel through that. I think it would be very interesting, actually, if more children were to write, if my generation were to write their books, so you could, we could have a literature about you know, what it is to grow up with parents who are political dissidents. But it is a story of trying to stand up for the good in your own country and suffering for it. And your parents tried as best as they could to protect your own brother and sister from the very grim realities of the communist regime and of the pressure and surveillance that you were all under, yet it was very visible even from a child's eyes. Yes, the oppressiveness of the regime was visible at school where children were forced to do voluntary work, if you can say that. You're forced to do voluntary work. When you were not really allowed to go to church because you were shamed in front of the class if you were going to church, you grew up with the dichotomy where you saw that their people were fighting on a line for bread but you were not supposed to be talking about, where the TV programs showed how the happy peasants on the tractors were singing and they were collecting lots of grains, and yet the bakeries were empty, the shelves were empty, there was no meat, there was uh, nothing. So, of course, we internalized this dual reality, and what we've learned was to repress ourselves. I know that you have children, and when you think about as a child growing up, to learn how to self-censor, that has a massive impact on your entire life and on your sense of trust. So can you tell me about how you went about self-censoring yourself and how that has impacted on your life today and how you trust and what you're willing to say? There were different levels of self-censorship. The society itself was a society that was self-censored. You learn not to write things that you don't want to because the letters were opened for everyone. So you learn how to write without uh, saying too much. You learn not to complain when you wanted to complain against something. You learn that there was an authority that was in charge and so you will suffer repercussions. That on, on one level. For us it was a bit more difficult because my father protested against the government at a time when it was clear that it was not a good idea to do that. And we had to control our 